Ryan's one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 5. We've made it to Luke chapter 5. Woohoo! Yeah. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 26. We're taking a bigger chunk this weekend. We're going to be looking at three stories. This is our certainty in a world of doubt. Teaching series through the Gospel of Luke. Complete change is the title of this weekend's message. Take a look at your sermon notes there, part of the intro. All human problems are ultimately symptoms. All human problems are ultimately symptoms and our separation from God is the cause. So when you look out over this whole world and wonder why it's so busted up and broken and fallen, that's symptomatic of our being separated, alienated from God. Bible's really clear about that. If you question that, all you need to do is go to Genesis chapter three. And you see Genesis chapter one and two, you have creation. Genesis chapter three, you have the fall. And then the rest of the Bible is all about redemption. God sent his son Jesus to redeem us, to reconcile us back to him. And um, take a look at your notes there. And so when he came to reconcile us back to, to the Father, that is Jesus, you cannot encounter Christ Jesus and live in communion with him and remain the same. So if you've been walking with the Lord for any length of time, you should be further down the road today than what you were when you started Okay, you ought to be able to look at your life and go, wow, I am making progress. If you're not, you need to take a serious look at whether or not you're actually walking in vital union and communion with him or whether or not you really know him. And so he will bring complete change to every area of your life so that you can experience not just quantity of life. Oftentimes when we define eternal life, we define it as a quantity of life, but it's more than that. It's a quality of life. A quality of life unlike anything else. A quality of life unlike anything else that you can experience out there. People that do not know the Lord cannot live the kind of life that we have. It's a privileged life. It's a powerful life. It's a life of unbelievable potential through Jesus Christ. Unlike any other life. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That kind of shows, that tells us a little bit about the brokenness and the fallenness of our world. But Jesus said, I came, you might have life and have it to the what? Fullest, yeah. Quantity, quality. Incomparable. For this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's John 17, 3. So this eternal life, this quantity, quality of life comes as a result of knowing Christ, walking with him, experiencing him, having a relationship with him. Now, this is less about circumstances and more about our characters, what we're looking at here, this life change. I know we all have circumstances we'd love to change, but it's actually more about our character than our circumstances because our circumstances matter far less to our happiness than our character. And in fact, God will use our circumstances to develop our character. Oh, goody. Aren't you thankful for that? So he's more concerned about your character than your circumstances, and he will use your circumstances, your bad circumstances, to develop your character and uh, to, to, 
to help you to experience more and more life change and to experience him. So you can kind of see where we're going here. We've got three stories, and we're going to look at Jesus' salvation and how it gives us complete change psychologically, sociologically, and then spiritually. That's where we're headed with this. We've got a lot of work to do here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> then we'll read our text and then unpack these notes. God, we are delighted to be here today. Father God, we love you. Nothing can transform a human heart, heal a wounded soul, give meaning, hope, and happiness like the gospel. We pray through the study of your inspired and infallible word and the personal and powerful work of your Holy Spirit that you would make the gospel not just clear to our minds, <clears throat> but real to our hearts, bringing complete change to every area of our lives, spiritually, psychologically, sociologically, for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Let's, let's read the text here. Uh, three stories we're gonna work through. Chapter five, verse one. On one occasion while the crowd was pressing in on him, so this is Jesus, this is, he's involved in his ministry now. And we've seen his spiritual baptism, his spiritual battle with Satan, and now he's launched out into his ministry, and he's becoming more and more popular. People are crowding around him, pressing in on him to hear the word of God. And he was standing by the lake of Gesineret, or Gesineret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets and getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. This is very common for teachers to sit and for the students to stand. And so we're gonna, we're gonna be a little bit more biblical this morning. So go ahead and stand. They forgot to bring my chair out here. I'm gonna go get it. So go ahead and... You guys aren't gonna do that? Okay. But so he's sitting in the boat, that would have been a perfect uh, amphitheater kind of thing because you know how the, the shoreline tends to go up, the people are crowding in, so he's wanting to get a little distance between him and the people, so he gets in the boat, he sits down, he's beginning to teach to them, talk to them. Verse four, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your net for catch. Now this is a, uh, this is a carpenter telling a fisherman how to fish, okay? So have you ever had anybody that was, uh, and maybe you're an expert in a particular field and you have a non-expert try to tell you how to do your job? It's, it's a bit annoying, isn't it? It's really annoying. They try to tell you. And so, but I, I want you to notice how Peter, or Simon, he's called Simon right now, but how he responds. And Simon answered, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing. I mean, they didn't, they didn't catch a thing exclamation mark. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Since you told me, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish. Now check this out. This is pretty, pretty spectacular. And their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink is that descriptive or what? So, so they, got, they got skunked the night before. They didn't catch a thing. And now, I mean, their boats are about to sink because of what Jesus said. Just a word from Jesus. And uh, 
So they signaled to their partners. They came. They both began to sink. Verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee. So these are three disciples. You got Simon, Peter, you got James and John, which by the way, these are the three that are within that inner circle. So you got the 12 that were disciples of Jesus, and then you've got the three that had even a closer relationship with Jesus. Jesus took them to places that the other nine didn't go to. So you got Peter, James, and John, who were partners with Simon, and so, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, for now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. That was amazing, that's the first story. We got two more stories, here's the next one. Jesus cleanses a leper. And he was in one of the cities, there came a, in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately, boom, the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. This is, we're seeing this consistent pattern where Jesus has a really busy ministry day and then he takes time in silence and solitude and just being still before the Father, recharging himself. Now, the third story here we're looking at this morning Jesus heals a paralytic. And on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. You notice, if you're familiar with the story, this house is just packed out. They can't even get into the house. So you guys know how the story goes. They go up on the roof and let him down. And so, uh, and, and finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, this is verse 19, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And the man who owned the house was really upset because they wrecked his roof. That's not part of the text, but I'm just thinking, wow, you just wrecked my roof. We try to get, we're trying to get in there, and we can't get in there, so we're going to drop him through the, through the roof of the house. And when he saw their faith, this is Jesus, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? So he's kind of giving them a little bit of a riddle. He's wanting them to really think deeper. 
Jesus was very Socratic in his approach many times to get people to think much deeper because we tend to be very superficial in our thinking, and this is what he's doing here, verse 24. But, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who paralyzed, who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord to us this, uh, this weekend, this morning. Now, Jesus' salvation gives us complete change. First of all, psychologically, our relationship with ourselves, that's your first fill in the blank on your notes. So first of all, psychologically, our relationship with ourselves. This is actually not first. First is actually spiritually, but we're gonna start psychologically and we'll work to uh, spiritually. But it's first in our notes. Now, what's interesting, this is Peter's great catch, that story. And before this encounter, he is always called Simon. During it, during this encounter, he's called Simon Peter. After this encounter, he's always called Peter. So he goes from Simon, from Simon to Simon Peter during this encounter to now his name is, is Peter. What that's telling us is that he experiences a transformation of identity. An encounter with Christ gives you a new identity. That's the first thing, what it, what it does psychologically, our relationship with ourselves. And this is what it, it starts with. It always starts right here. I am more sinful than I ever dared to believe. Many of you could have already filled that in, couldn't you? Because you've heard me say that a lot. An encounter with Christ gives you a new identity. I am more sinful than I ever dared to believe. Verse eight, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So do, do you realize what happened to Peter? He all of a sudden realizes, oh my goodness. This could be deity. I'm in the presence of, of God. There's something pretty powerful here. He felt totally exposed before Christ. And uh, every place in the Bible when someone encounters God, it is traumatic. I've got a number of them right there on your notes. Exodus 3.11, you've got Moses. Judges 6.15, you've got Gideon. Isaiah 6.5, you've got Isaiah. And Jeremiah 6.1, you've got Jeremiah. Now, let me give you an illustration of what this might f- feel like. Early, in the early days of Desert Breeze, I led the music along with the teaching. It was really hard uh, when we were over at the Rose Garden. There might be a few of you still here uh, from the Rose Garden Center. And... Um, I led, and we were doing two services. I was still in the fire department at the time, so at the end of the second service, I'd blow out of there and have to head down to Fire Station 10 down the freeway when I was working that particular shift. I'd take uh, vacation that morning, but it was, it was extremely hard work. But I, I was pretty much, for the most part, a, a self-taught guitar player and mediocre at best. And uh, when I would get in the presence of someone really, really talented musically, and I, I grew up singing and doing all that, but when I'd get in the presence of someone talented musically, I had mixed feelings. It was very attractive to me, and at the same time, it was very, very intimidating. You guys know what I'm talking about? Very, very intimidating, and I felt very inadequate. When you are in the presence of, of exceptional 
excellence, whether it be physical or intellectual or athletic or musically uh, exceptional excellence. It attracts you and it repels you at the same time. It kind of exposes you a bit. And how much more would this be true, getting close to God? When people tell me they're getting close to God and they don't have this experience of their sinfulness being exposed, then I know that they haven't gotten close to God. Because it has a way of His holiness exposes our sinfulness. And you see that, you see that in all these uh, stories and these illustrations that I gave you here through Exodus and Judges and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and you see this in, in Peter's life. See, when you get close to God, if it doesn't stir up some sludge down deep in your heart, then you didn't get close to God. His perfect love reveals our self-centeredness and our selfishness. His infinite wisdom exposes our folly and our foolishness. His unlimited power uncovers our weakness and really reveals to us how little we do have control over. And that's the first thing, but you need to not stop there because that's only part of the understanding of grace and and, uh, the gospel. The second one is that I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. Did you notice almost instantaneously, verse 10, Jesus said, do not be afraid. So, So Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus responds to him, says, do not be afraid, for now on you will be catching men. Now, this is pretty fascinating. I want you to think about this just for a minute, that the very person who makes Peter feel worse than he has ever felt affirms him more than he has ever been affirmed. So there's almost this kind of one-two punch, this combination of, uh, as I tell you, that my job is to, is to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And, and that's really what's happening here. He, he disturbs the comfortable and then he comforts the disturbed. Almost kind of the one-two punch of, of Christ when we get into his presence. And Jesus is inviting Peter into a relationship beyond all relationships and a mission and a purpose that is, that is more significant than anything on this planet. Now I want you to think just for a moment because every church on this planet, particularly in America today, we, we tend to swing to one of those two extremes. These two parts to gospel, to the gospel, need to be there. Otherwise, you will not experience life change. If you have not experienced life change in your life, then you're missing one of these parts. That I'm more sinful and I'm more loved simultaneously. And what I want you to do, and they're necessary for life change, I want you, and I did this last night, and I think that it seemed to go well. They're kind of my guinea pigs on... uh, on Saturday night just to see if it works and so it seemed to work so we'll see if it works in, in this uh, in this service but I want you to turn to the folks next to you and so what happens in your life if you swing to one extreme or another in other words you go to a church and all they teach is about sin, 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 sin and then you go to another one all they teach is all they teach on is love, 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 love and there's not that combination of, of both I'm more sinful than I ever dared to believe. I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. It has to have the combination of both. Otherwise, you're not going to experience life change. But if you swing to one extreme or the other, it's, gonna, it's called something and it, and it does something. It kind of stunts your growth. Real quick, dis- discuss that.
Okay, so let me ask you this. When a church, all they do is talk about your sin all the time, what would that be classified as? What kind of a church would that be? Someone answered it last night. It's going to be a, a legalistic church. They're going to be li- very legalistic. It's very works righteousness kind of a church, very legalistic. What about a church? And by the way, there are major ministries right now. You can turn on the TV this morning and probably see one of those major ministries. They never talk about sin. The guy even says he never talks about sin, and it's all about grace, all about God's love. And by the way, you're not going to change if that's all you ever talk about. You're not going to experience the change in your life. You're going to be stunted in your growth because there needs to be the combination of both of these in your understanding of, of grace. And that's more of a cheap grace. It's called license. So more love minus more sinful. So you got, you, you, all there is is talk about his love and you're not coming to terms with your own sinfulness. It's called cheap grace. It's license. It's going to fill you with pride and more of an attitude of superiority. If it's more sinful minus more loved, it's legalism, and it's more about a motivation out of, of fear. It's going to create more inferiority within you. But when you teach a balance of, yes, we're more sinful than we ever dared to think, but more loved than we ever dared to dream, when you have that combination working in your life, you're not going to have fear. You're not going to have pride or fear motivating you. It's going to be a heart smitten captivated by the love of Jesus and who he is and what he's done for you. It's going to create this humble courage. I've been teaching this a long time. You guys should have this down, but I need to keep teaching it because because we need this, because we tend to swing to one extreme or the other. What's interesting about Peter is that he finally gets this, and later on in the book of John, remember after the resurrection, Peter's out fishing, and they hear someone from the shoreline, and they've been fishing all night. They don't catch anything. It's, it's John chapter 21, and this voice from the shoreline says, throw your nets on the other side. So they throw their nets on the other side, and they have this m- amazing catch, and immediately Peter realizes it's Jesus. He dives into the water and swims to him. His instinct is to go to Jesus. His instinct here is to go away from Jesus, but now in that story, he understands grace, So when you understand grace, yes, I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think, but oh my goodness, I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. Your instinct will be when you fail, you run to Jesus because you know that you're loved. So it creates this uh, amazing combination. I'm more sinful than I ever dared to believe. I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. That eliminates pride. But I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. He loved me so much, he wanted to die for me. That eliminates fear. So therefore, we should never, ever be towering or cowering. We should never have an attitude of superiority towards anybody or inferiority towards anybody because of his amazing love for us. It's it's quite amazing. And so that's what ultimately transforms you. It's not fear and pride. That's That's more of a morally restrained will. One of the reasons why people are stunted in their growth is because they're trying to motivate themselves either through fear or pride. Fear is God's going to get you. Pride is you're better than that. Come on, you can do better than that. Well, that's, that's not, that's just, that's a morally restrained will, not a supernaturally transformed heart. Because we do bad things out of fear and pride. You don't turn that around and tell people to do good things out of fear and pride because you haven't done, you haven't dealt with what's fundamentally wrong with us, our self-centeredness. And the only thing that deals with our self-centeredness is when we encounter Christ and we realize that I'm, I'm, I'm sinful and I'm loved at the same time. 
and you run into his arms, he begins to transform your heart. Here's the test. If you think one of these errors, license or cheap grace, license or legalism is much more dangerous than the other, you are probably partially participating in the one you fear less. So you tend to gravitate towards one extreme or the other. Well, we go to a grace church and all they talk about is the love of God. Well, where's, do they talk about sin? Hopefully they talk about sin. And when you study God's word, I'm exposed, I'm exposed all the time with my sin. I, I, and it makes me more desperate to, to know Christ and to experience him. See, gospel doctrine of sin and love must not just be known intellectually, but experienced deep in your heart. So, so let me explain this before we move on. It's really critical that we understand this. When you understand your dire condition apart from Christ, do you know how dire your condition is apart from Christ? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not what? Perish. You're going to perish apart from Jesus. Do you have any idea? You're going to perish. You're doomed. And when you understand your dire condition apart from Christ, now listen to me, the magnitude of his provision stirs up within you unspeakable and glorious joy. The reason why you don't experience that unspeakable, glorious joy is you don't understand your dire condition combined with the magnitude of his provision. If I came to you and said I paid a debt for you, you wouldn't know how excited to get until I told you the debt that I paid, would you? If it was postage due, you'd just pat me on the back. Boom. Or, you know, I, I, I bought you a, a drink from our cafe. You owed them four bucks, okay, for a drink. You might go, okay, thank you very much. I'll buy the next time around. But if I paid off every one of your debts, your home, your car, whatever. In fact, you don't even have to work another day of your life. Any takers? Okay, of course. I mean, you would be delighted, wouldn't you? Listen to me. Jesus paid a debt for us that was beyond our ability to pay. We have eternal life. Oh my goodness. See, we don't live in the reality of that enough. Because if we did, even if we had a terrible bad day, it wouldn't matter because we have him in our lives, never to leave us or forsake us. <clears throat> and so, this is gonna create within us this desire to, here's number three, you will leave everything and follow Jesus. I gotta take it easy here. My voice is going. This stuff gets me too excited though. I love, I just absolutely love the gospel. I, I never get tired of it. Just absolutely amazing. You will leave everything and follow Jesus. Look at verse 11. They left everything and followed him. They didn't just leave their nets. They also left their catch. Did you see that in the story? It's pretty fascinating. They didn't just leave their vocation, but also the greatest catch they ever had. Tons of money and success unlike they had ever experienced. <clears throat> Now, this does not mean that if you encounter Christ, you'll have to leave your current vocation and go into full-time ministry. That's not what it's talking about. But what it means is that when you encounter Christ, he will affect every part of your life, including your work life. Your relationship with Christ becomes the most important relationship in every area of your life. He becomes someone who you so adore 
that you would gladly renounce everything to follow him. I mean, do you know him like that? Have you had that kind of an experience? That's what Peter, James, and John are doing. They're, they're putting that away and saying, we're following you with our lives. Now, how was Peter able to leave this kind of success because he had a new identity in Christ? To the degree that you are working for your identity through your vocation is to the degree that you are a slave to your vocation. And you could put in there, not just your vocation, you might be a stay-at-home mom, or you might put your identity in, in any number of things, your athleticism, or how much money you have in the bank, or whatever. What you're doing is you're working for your identity rather than from your identity. We already have an identity in Christ. But whatever it is that you're striving to achieve that identity through, whether it be vocation or your kids or any number of things, it will control your life. But when you have this new identity in Christ, those things no longer control you. It can even be a marriage relationship. They, have that, they do not have that control on your life. So how do you break the hold your work has on you? It's only when you discover a fishing beyond this fishing or a wealth beyond this wealth. Verse 10, and Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, for now on you will be catching men. That word is interesting. The word catching men literally means to rescue people from death and give them life. Jesus came, we've already said this, Jesus came to liberate people spiritually, psychologically, and socially. And he wants us to be a part of that. I mean, how's that for meaning in life? That's what he's invited us to. And and when you encounter God in the story of Jesus, you get swept up into a story of such cosmic drama and beauty that you are forever changed. Now, I looked at my life. I was a pipe fitter welder for a number of years. Worked out of Palo Verde for four of those years. And then I became a paramedic firefighter for a number of years, and now I'm a pastor. But each of those, it didn't matter what I did, what my vocation was, I was still on mission for Christ. My primary identity was in Christ Jesus, and therefore those things didn't control my life. Those were just a platform for me to be able to Let my light shine before men so that they can see my good deeds and glorify my Father in heaven. And so it should be true also for you. God has placed you where you are, in your vocation, your neighborhood, in your family, to fish for men. Your primary identity is to fish for men out of this sense of who you are in Jesus Christ. You and I are characters in and carriers of the great story of redemption through Jesus Christ of cosmic proportions, of eternal proportions. That's the psychological change that he brings. Here's the next one, sociological, our relationship with others. This is uh, Jesus cleanses the leper. And the gospel brings in those who are left out. Verse 13a, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, lepers in Jesus' day were considered very contagious and unclean religiously. Therefore, they were not allowed into towns, making them outcasts socially. 
emotionally and economically. Jesus didn't have to touch him to heal him physically. Is that not true? Why would Jesus reach out and touch him? This guy's contagious. Why would he do that? Because he's healing him both physically and emotionally. And not only that, he tells him in verse 14, he charged him, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. He's wanting to include him back into the community of of people and, and believers. When you study the life of Jesus, you will see a disproportionate number of people who the world would consider losers and outcasts and unimportant, and Jesus bringing them into his family. Therefore, when the gospel comes into your life, it changes the way you look at people. If Christ is in your heart, it changes the way you look at other races, other classes, other social groups, other political groups. You don't have a hatefulness toward people of different races or classes. That doesn't happen in your heart. All those barriers are down. That's that's why when I hear some of the ugliness that comes out of the mouths of people that call themselves Christians, I'm really wondering, do they even know the gospel? It's not about driving wedges. It's about building bridges. That's what Christ came to do. And so this is what you see here sociologically. In fact, in the body of Christ, there should never be cliques or pecking order or attitudes of superiority and inferiority. Everyone is treated and should be treated with dignity, honor, value, respect as image bearers of God. And especially, especially those who need it the most deserve it the least. And yet we give it to them anyway. I, I shared with you last weekend about this, oh, this young gal, Rose, who was demonized. You guys remember that? It was amazing the changes that she, she like I said, she was nothing like a Rose when you first met her. You, you were almost kind of repelled from her. And yet she came into this church and came into our small group. I was the leader of this small group. And these people reached out to her and loved her. And I mean, I watched her change psychologically, physically, spiritually, just before my eyes. I mean, it was just, it was amazing over the months that she began to change. She actually started washing and combing her hair, Okay. Because she just, she was really depressed person. And it began to transform her heart, her life. But it was because the people, the Christians, reached out to her and brought her in. The gospel brings in those who are left out. The gospel means no person or situation is ever hopeless. That's your next fill in the blank. You guys might have to play this video for the next service. Actually, you could play last night, couldn't you? So the gospel means no person or situation is ever hopeless. Verse 13, I will, I will, this is Jesus responding, I will. So how did this, this leper somehow was able to get in among the people? Because usually lepers were in their own little leper colony and, and away from towns and isolated. And, and so somehow he was so desperate that he came out to seek out Jesus and kind of worked his way through the crowd. And 
And Jesus reaches out and touches him, and he says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. One touch from Jesus, and you are fit for the presence of God. Really gives us a great picture here. Everything Jesus Christ has done is now legally true of us. I loved the verses that we were meditating on earlier. Psalm 34, 18. God is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I mean, I know that as a believer that he's close to me, but he's even more close, particularly close, when you're brokenhearted and you're struggling in your life. He's there for us. No one is so good that they can't or that they don't need the grace of the gospel, nor so bad that they can't receive the grace of the gospel. So let me ask you this question. Do you have people in your life that you, th- you thought, oh my goodness, they'll never come to faith in Jesus? Anybody? Yeah. How about, are you maybe facing a situation that just seems completely and totally hopeless? You're wondering, oh my goodness, how am I gonna get through this? Listen to me. The gospel means no person or situation is ever hopeless. Ever, ever, ever hopeless. By the way, the word for hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. It's not, I hope so, kind of wishful thinking kind of thing. No, it's confident, joyful expectation because God will do something. That's the idea here. He's gonna do something. He will do something. Next point in your notes, Generously love people will love generously. That's you and I. Look at verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. When was the last time that you withdrew to a desolate place and encountered the living God through that time? You were still and you knew that he was God. Be still and know that I am God. Step out of the traffic. Take a long loving look at me, your high God. 4610 of of Psalm. He's close to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. This last week, my, uh, my wife and I went up north to Fire Sky Farm and helped out my son and daughter-in-law it's just outside of Prescott, and they took a, needed to take a week off and gave them a break. And so I spent the week milking cows, delivering goats, taking care of five grandkids in blistering cold weather up north, that's probably why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. But here's what's fascinating about this. I physically, I'm wiped out, but spiritually I'm recharged because while we were up there, I had some moments with God. Where their house is, it's kind of up on a kind of elevated place. And man, you can see all the mountains that surround. And with that blistery weather, all the mountains are covered with snow. And from their place, you can see San Francisco peaks. And it's breathtaking. And I had some moments with God this last week that were exceptional. And though I'm wiped out physically, oh my goodness, I'm recharged spiritually. Is that possible? Yeah. Oh my goodness, I had some encounters with God when I'm out there with the cows, milking them early in the morning and and doing what we were doing there on that farm. And... uh, that's, you need that. When was the last time you had that? You had that experience. You don't need to go to Fire Sky Farm to find that. You can find it today. You can find it tomorrow morning when you get up early. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. 1 John 3.16. I know that you know John 3.16. How many know John 3.16? I quoted it earlier. Okay. Some of you are hesitant to even say, yeah, I think I... 
How many know John 3.16? Okay. Thank you. How many know 1 John 3.16? 1 John 3.16, listen to what it says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Uh, have you guys seen that commercial here lately? Uh, the Hollywood crowd trying to define love. They're clueless, okay? They, they don't even know what love is. And they're trying to define love, and they're saying, well, I think love is this, and I think love is that. Well, you don't come up with your own definition of love. But see, that's our culture today. The Bible is defining it for us right here. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. You can't give what you don't have. And if you're not living in the reality of him having laid down his life for you, you're not going to be laying down your life for others. You want to make your marriage better? You want to make your parenting better? Begin to realize that he laid his life down for you, and you begin to lay down your life for others, for your spouse and for your kids and, and for your coworkers. That's what he's talking about. I was uh, <clears throat> studying a little bit this last week from Tozer, A.W. Tozer. And in, it, it, I was reflecting on worship from some of his writings, and he says, worship rises or falls with our concept of God. When you came in here today, and if your worship wasn't rising, it's because you have a small concept of God. During our time, you weren't thinking deep enough about who God is how much he loves you. He also said that we are called to be worshipers first and then workers second. Work that flows out of our worship will have eternity all over it. Oftentimes the reason why we burn out is because we're not really good at worshiping. We're not good at spending time with God. And it's out of that fullness that we receive from him, then there's, there's that overflow in our lives. But here's the, the most important thing right here is the, the last one which is really the first one spiritually, our relationship with God. Jesus heals a paralytic. So when you go back to Genesis 3, this is what went down. When Adam and Eve thought that they were smarter than God and unbelief, they begin to doubt God's goodness. They took life into their own hands and they were alienated spiritually. That spiritual alienation immediately created a psychological alienation, which then created a social alienation between them and between others. This is the cure right here. All sins are ultimately against God. Verse 20, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So the first idea is that you need to realize, and even as, as David said in Psalm 51.4, against you, this is his repentant psalm, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you're thinking, wait a minute, when I read that, I'm thinking, David, you, you basically molested Bathsheba, you abducted her, you killed her husband, you betrayed your whole nation, and you're telling me you sinned against God? Yes. All sin is ultimately against God. For him to, to molest Bathsheba and murder her husband and betray his nation, that nation, Israel, he had to trample on the love and the wisdom of God. 
It was a dagger to the heart of God. You see, sin is not the breaking of some arbitrary laws. All sins are trampling on God's love and wisdom. In his love and wisdom, he has established these laws for us to live by. And when we go outside of those, basically we're trampling on what he has in our best interest. All sins are ultimately against God. Here's the next one, number two. Our most fundamental problems are not physical but spiritual. Verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? And what he's talking about here, what's our worst problem, physical or spiritual? Okay, there's like three of us here that believe that. How many would say our worst problems are spiritual? Show of hands. Okay, yeah. Our worst problems are spiritual, always spiritual. We're gonna be eternally separated from God. So oftentimes we look at our physical problems thinking, oh, these are overwhelming. Well, not as overwhelming as being separated from God for all eternity. That's nothing. In fact, God will use the physical to draw our hearts and to develop our character in the spiritual. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the wonder of the cross. This is what's so spectacular about this as we end our time this morning. The wonder of the cross is that in the very same stroke, it satisfies both the love of God, that aspect of his nature that seeks our justification, and the justice of God, that aspect of his nature that demands our punishment of sin. Right there in the cross, you see this colliding of both the love of God and the justice of God so that we can be set free spiritually and that we can have his presence, that no matter how bad it might get physically, if we have his presence, we can face anything. Here's the next point in your notes. Jesus died in our place for our sins so that we can be rescued from judgment and reconciled to the Father forever. Verse 24, but that you may know the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. First Peter 3, 18 says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Isaiah 53, five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with him and with his wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. So Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the gospel, the good news that you have reconciled us to yourself by sending your son to die in our place for our sins. And all who repent and believe have eternal life. God, I pray for those that need to do that today, that you would continue to work on their hearts until they do it, until they come to faith in you. The spiritual reconciliation brings a psychological reconciliation. All the acceptance, security, and significance we'll ever need to face anything. And out of that comes a sociological reconciliation, a desire and an ability to reach out and bring in the marginalized and the outcast and even the power to love our enemies. Help us to grow deeper into the gospel so that it can transform every area of our lives and produce in us a type of people consumed with a passion for God and a compassion for others. In Jesus' holy and beautiful name, we pray these things. And everyone said, Amen. amen. Love you guys.